Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, and a Cure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. It's time to grab your friends and family near and far to walk together towards a cure for ocular melanoma. Each year, roughly 7,000 individuals worldwide are diagnosed with this rare eye cancer. Because it is a rare orphan cancer, this diagnosis often feels lonely and hopeless. We challenge you from all across the world to join us in January 2024 in taking 7,000 steps each day of the month in honor of those patients who will begin to walk the path of ocular melanoma this year, as well as all the patients currently living with this rare disease. We believe we are all created for impact, and while alone, we may not feel we can do much to bring about change, we know that we are so much better together. Walk with us not only to kickstart a healthy new year, but also to see progress in ocular melanoma research. As you participate in Steps for Sight, every step you take and every dollar raised will bring us closer to funding critical research needed for a cure. To increase the impact of this worldwide initiative, Akira Insight is partnering with the Melanoma Research Alliance in 2024 to maximize the benefits from the funds raised. Akira Insight will once again work with MRA to jointly issue the grant award and make the announcement in the following calendar year. The money we raised last year will be matched by MRA to fund a two-year research grant for ocular melanoma. See the STEPS registration page for more details. This year, with your help, we can fund another actionable research project exclusively for ocular melanoma. We are always better together, so don't wait. Register and start a team for Steps for Sight today. Welcome back to the I Believe podcast. We are here joined by a guest, Suzanne O'Brien. And before I introduce her fully, I'm going to just run through a couple housekeeping announcements. Coming up in January, we have more walks. 2024 is already set with some of the dates. So just take a look at lookingforacure.org and you can find a race near you so that you can get started, get registered, and make sure that your friends and family know about any of the early bird signups. Let's go ahead and introduce our guest for the day. So uh, we have Suzanne O'Brien, who is a registered nurse uh, from St. Petersburg, Florida. And I'm going to go ahead and let you just kind of tell us your history, Suzanne, if that's okay. Oh, absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me and thank you, everyone. Um, I, my, I'm a registered nurse by trade and my background is in hospice care, which is end of life care and or oncology care, which is cancer care. And from the moment that I worked in that space, I realized that we have huge gaps, not just in education and support, but even about talking about the natural sacred experience that end of life is and then how it can go so much better for patients and families and we we need to now bring that back a hundred years ago it was something that a grandmother used to teach a grandchild end of life how we care for people and literally we've removed it almost entirely from our awareness and it's causing end of life to be a thousand times more challenging so i developed trainings called doula givers and we'll talk about that that is for the non-medical holistic training for families, for caregivers, just so we can bring back this education. And I will tell you this, that 80 to 90% of a better end of life happens when we talk about it and plan ahead and know what's available to us for support. So that is what I do. And I am grateful to be here. 
it with you. Well, I so appreciate you joining us. And for those of you who don't know or haven't seen Suzanne's Doula Givers page or any of her stuff on Facebook, I have followed her stuff for a while, like just her page, her content, and she has a ton of resources and we'll talk about a little bit more of that. She has done a lot of videos. She's very, just very open, but I also feel like very very sensitive to, to what this journey looks like for people. And, um, she has a, I think there's a community that you can join for caregivers or for yourself. If you want to learn more about palliative care, about hospice care, about just living well is what I've seen in these groups about just like living well through, through anything that you're navigating. Um, and of course with a stage four diagnosis or with a cancer diagnosis that can look different. So can we just, let's just kind of establish a definition Let's talk about the difference between like what is palliative care and what is hospice care. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times they're grouped together. So you'll see palliative hospice care. And it really, again, the word hospice almost right now has this entirely fear-based and negative connotation. There's several reasons for that. But the main reason is this, is that people know it means death and dying. And they don't want to go there because death is our number one fear in this world. Which, by the way, I just have to share with you, I've been doing this a very long time. And for something that's 100% guaranteed as part of our journey for all of us, for it to be the number one fear in the world, how did that happen? And it really is only in the last hundred years. And I really had to study this, you know, being that practitioner at the end of life, hospice nurse, oncology nurse, when people would get diagnoses that would, you know, put them right in that space of thinking about the end of life. Um, it's so much more difficult and the fear just just comes about and i always try to say what is the fear and i understand we don't want to rush this we don't want to get there but when we don't know the support the availability what life's about really what makes a beautiful end of life um we can't have that accomplished if we're not discussing it and then and just to share with you all that i have been privileged and honored to see some of the most beautiful end of life experiences. And this is why my platform was built to give those elements, what I call the elements of what you need to know as a family member, as a person in this journey that allow you to have that positive end of life. So for something that's 100%, and I'm talking about 80 to 90% beautiful, um, that's what we're talking about. That's what my experience is. And so I don't want us to be afraid of something that maybe we can't even pinpoint, what is that fear? And that's one of the big questions. So going back to palliative and hospice care is that palliative means symptom management. So it means that this, this disease process or condition can't be reversed. So it can't be reversed by a treatment or a surgery, but it means that we can do tight, what I call tight symptom management, which by the way, with tight symptom management, I have seen people do better in the last six months of life than they have in 30 years. And that's really important. The longer we're living now and our lifespan has never, we've never seen this aging population and this demographic, we are going to have issues happen, physical, cognitive, financial. And so we need to know what we can do for that high quality every single day of living. And we can get it really high when we share the tools of how to do that. So palliative means it can't be reversed, but we can have comfort care and symptom management. 
And hospice means that end of life care. And again, it applies to the goal is to have symptom management so tight that every single day is at the highest quality for as many days as we have. And I believe all of us should live our every day that way with that. Yeah. No, I love that. And I think that that's, that's such a nice way to break it down. Um, and to just kind of establish like, like, yes, they are related, but also they're separate in some ways. Like they, they have their own unique purpose. Um, so, and the more, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. And Janae, the more that we have, the more that we see this aging population and family caregivers needing that support of what can we do? We honestly have to really understand what palliative care is, how it is not hospice because we want our loved ones to have the highest quality. So palliative care will become more and more, I think, a part of all of our journeys as this aging demographic uh, progresses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So can we just talk a little bit about, um, like, why is this beneficial to the patients and families? Obviously, like, we want, I think we've kind of covered a little bit maybe to the patient, um, but why is this helpful to families, like the caregivers of these patients who, you know, are, are seeking or needing that palliative or hospice care? Yeah. So we love our loved ones. We love our family members. And I think sometimes we feel incredibly helpless when someone's going through an illness. And I want to say this, that it is almost equally as intense for that main caregiver as it is for the person going through it. Very different journeys. But, but you know, when we are caring for people, we care for not only the patient, but all the loved ones as well. And so we want to bring back education and tools to support the caregiver, to be able to know what they can do. So it's an empowering moment to help their loved one that's in this situation. And what I found as a nurse, unfortunately, and I think this is not news to anyone, is that our medical system is broken down and fragmented. And the amount of actual bedside time that medical practitioners have with patients is so minimal As a hospice nurse, I was there for one hour once a week in the home, one hour once a week. There are huge gaps right now because of the reimbursement structure. And so what I did about 16 years ago now is go to my hospice CEO and say, these end of lives are not going as well as they could go. And I'm being very gentle when I say that. And the concept of hospice is that the hospice nurse is supposed to teach the loved ones, the family member, how to care for their dying loved one. There's not enough time. It's not happening. What about if I develop this training, which I have here for you, three phases of end of life, interventions that the family can use in each one of those phases, and we can teach them ahead of time and they can have it in its completion. And he said, this is great. We can't do it. And I said, why? He goes, we won't get reimbursed for it. So I said, okay, I'm just going to go to the local library, give it for free. And guess what happened? not a seat left in the, in the room. It filled up. And so again, we want to make sure that we're filling the gaps of what mainstream medical at this time is not able to provide. And I want to remind us all of this, that death is not a medical experience. It's a human one and it's a holistic one. And a hundred years ago, a grandmother used to hand down this skill to a grandchild, this training, and you can take this for free. We're going to share the resources at the end is 90 minutes long. It has been used by almost 400,000 people around the world with amazing success. And so today, this is still what doula givers, our main initiative is that free training. 
It empowers families to feel grounded and centered that they know what they can do to care for their loved one or know that what they're seeing is a natural part of the process. It allows for the highest quality of the day. It brings back the sacred experience of end of life and it being natural completely changes everything. So that's that's what we need to do for patients and families. And just one more thing is that nine out of 10 people say that they wanna be cared for at home if they become terminally ill and when and I, my hand is up with that. We need to support patients to be able to be at home with supporting the families to know how to do that because 98% of the hands-on care and hospice care is done by the loved ones. That's such a good point. And I don't, I don't know that I have ever mm-hmm. established, you know, this level of knowledge myself. Um, that was part of, that was part of my reasoning for wanting to do this is I'm like, okay, I know, I know that I am not the only one who maybe has, like you said, this maybe right. irrational fear around just even talking about this. Um, yeah. And so I guess we could, let's just cover that. Like, why do you feel like there are, there is a level of fear? Um, what do you see in, in your, in your practice, um, with people being afraid of even initiating palliative care or hospice care? Absolutely. And, and this, this is probably if, you know, if we did three hours on, on fear, this is probably one of the most important things we talk about at this moment is because, I was privileged to grow up in a medical family. So from a young age, I heard my parents talking about people who died and people that were in surgeries. And so I knew that end of life was a part of our journey, even if it wasn't being directly told to me, children absorb. And when I got into the hospital setting and people were dying and it was so fearful and I thought, what happened? You know, what happened? You know, how, how did it get, get like this? And then I was being called to go to hospice. I was having this heart guidance called hospice. And I thought for sure in hospice care, we would be talking open about it. It would be better. We would have time with our patients and all of that. And it wasn't better. And so for me, immediately I had to say, and I saw things done and I think we can all relate to this, especially in the oncology, when I was an oncology nurse, when people would get the terminal diagnosis, their cancer spread, you know, um, and again, I think a lot of the language we use in the medical profession needs to be looked at and changed. Saying, I'm sorry, there's no more I can do for you when somebody has a terminal diagnosis is absolutely false. There is so much that we can do for people. And, And I think we've built this fear bubble around end of life in a few different ways. Number one, removing it from our awareness. So, you know, cause I've studied this. I said, how did we get here? By the way, we've been dying for thousands of years. We know how to do this. It's only in the last 100. So I think it's this like trifecta of what happened is number one, in the last hundred years, we have made major medical advances and we are able to keep people alive. And we've taught the doctors how to do that. And we can do that well, but keeping people alive and living are two very different things. And we actually treat our doctors right now that if their patient dies, they failed. And I've seen doctors walk down the hallway, their 99 year old patient who's had cancer for you know a year finally died with their head down like they failed. That is one part of it. Second is we don't, we don't see aging and end of life like we used to. You know, our, our loved ones live in institutions and in different states, and you might get a phone call that Nana's in the hospital or that she had her end of life. It's not really real anymore. We don't see that. 
And this fear has completely uh, developed, you know, from the language that we use and the, and the, we don't even really as medical practitioners give that option, which is really what I want to talk to you about, about your empowerment, your knowledge, and you making subjective decisions for yourself because you're unique and everyone's going to have a difference of that. But as a medical professional, I wasn't even seeing in these moments, I wasn't even seeing, you know, you have choice A, choice B and choice C. I was seeing that they got a diagnosis of terminal cancer or cancer that was advanced, that it was a panic across the board with the family because of this fear. And I also saw people do procedures and things that were never going to reverse the quality or the condition of that disease. And that caused them a lot more harm. And that is heartbreaking. So I want to say this, that for a, a part of our journey, end of life, that we'll all be experiencing with ourselves, with those we love, is that we need to decide for ourselves what quality of life means to me. And when is the time, when is that in my journey where I wouldn't want things done to extend my life if there's not quality there? And then, of course, bringing in the beautiful end of life experiences, what people have said at the end of life so that we can bring it back into the natural sacred experience that it really is. That does it need to be feared or it, or have we just developed this bubble for whatever reason that is making end of life a thousand times harder for all of us? No. And I wonder, and I, I don't want to go off too much of a tangent, but I, I followed a, mm. a wife of someone who is in our community and we've actually had her on Emily Bingham. She's a, a grief, uh, I guess you would call her a grief coach. And she's a widow and she specifically works with other widows and she's got a fantastic course. And she um, really just took her experience and has transformed both herself and also been able to transform the experience of others. And it's been beautiful to see her do that. But one of the things that she's talked about is this idea that in our world, A, we don't talk about dying enough and B, we don't talk about grief enough. Like that just this idea of what does grief look like and that there's this anticipatory grief that happens when you know the end, you know, the end is coming, whether, whether it's for your sweet little cat that you've had for 20 years and you know that they're, they're close to dying because of whatever symptoms they're presenting or, or because somebody, you know, passed away suddenly in, you know, a car accident or just a sudden tragic accident. It doesn't matter how, how this, you know, this, this death happens, this loss happens, but that grief is there. And I think that when we avoid feeling the grief, um, what she talks about is that idea that when we're avoiding feeling and recognizing and honoring that grief, it makes the fear of the rest of the experience, the loss itself that much bigger. Um, yeah, let's roll this back for a minute because I think this is really important what you just shared about grief. But first of all, I just want to share with you that when we're talking about death, we are talking about life. They're not exclusive of one another because I have never lived more fully than when I started be working with those at the end of life as a hospice nurse. Why? Because your level of gratitude of everything in your life completely changes in the best way possible. It's no longer, oh, I have to go to the gym. I get to go to the gym. It's no longer, I have to go to the grocery store. I get to go to the grocery store. Like things just change. The, the moments, the sunshine on your face, like everything changes. And that's a very important part because at the end of life, you know, for my patients, and I've been honored to be with over a thousand people at the end of life, they, they know that death is the number one fear in the world. However, I really feel for my patients that it was not so much the fear of death as it was the regret, 
that they did not live, they did not take each day and live it like what I call one little lifetime and really share the gift of loving and of whatever gift they brought into this world because they just thought they had time. And, and we just don't know. So let's talk about grief for a moment. Right now, I think we are stuck and we see this global epidemic of grief, really traumatic grief. And I want to say this to you with so much love that my, my understanding and belief system is that we have so much traumatic grief is because we are not talking about end of life. Because I see it when people have the relationship with end of life, life, the, the wisdom of what this experience is about living in that graceful presence in the day. When we get to the end of life, the grief is completely different. It can be healed. And so right now people are stuck because end of life shows up, which hundred percent it will. It's really a train wreck for everyone. The person dies. They're stuck in that horrible, intense memory and container of what it is, and there's nowhere for it to really go. So you said, right, we have to be able to feel the grief, but we are suffering from such levels of trauma and grief right now because we're not talking about end of life education and the yeah. natural no, that's, experience. That's a really that it is. good point. That that idea that yes. if we're not if we're not learning about the experience, I mean, you know, when when you have, I mean, just to draw this parallel. When you have a baby, you go to birth class, right? I mean, most, most, most couples will attend at least a single or a series of birthing classes where they learn about what is this experience that is birth. Um, that's how life begins. It would absolutely make sense that, like you said, historically, that that used to happen, that there used to be some level of class almost where we learned about what is, what is the end of life look like? What is, you know, what is this sacred experience? Like you said, that it, it doesn't have to be this thing that we're so afraid of, but I think that, I don't know, I guess, I guess as, as a patient myself, I, I think about sometimes that, you know, maybe that fear comes from worry that my family members, well, not even for, for me, that was what it was. It was worried that my family members wouldn't be able to handle me being gone. And, and that is something I can't control regardless of how much I try to teach my family members, like they will have to cope. They will have to do that. But like you said, this, this level of uh, empowering our family members, empowering ourselves as patients with this knowledge of end of life care and hospice and palliative care and how they can help us. That's something that's not something to be feared. Really. That's, that's information and knowledge that I feel like we could, we could say is, is exceptionally empowering. Um, and I think that, I mean, I, I see that in how you talk about it. And I imagine any of the patients that, well, to be honest, I, I would imagine any of the patients who we, if we tried to talk to them, they would probably be like, I'm too busy living my life right now to talk to you about this. But generally like, you know, like that they would, they would say they feel that. What? I have chills because so many things just like came in when you were talking like across the board. And we had this one beautiful woman, Jody Stockhammer, and she was stage four on hospice. And I was doing an interview with her and she was running. She, and this was early in the morning. She runs in and she's like, I'm so sorry. I was late because I was doing this and that, and the other thing. She talks about never having more joy and love in her life until this stage. Symptom management, but her heart broke open. She learned about life so much in it. She learned about letting go and forgiveness. 
talking about end of life education teaches us how to live. It is our greatest teacher about how to live. And the fact that we've removed it, Danae, I feel like is directly related to the chaos in which we see in the world. I mean, let's bring the sacredness of this whole journey of humanity back. I, I yeah. love, I love how you talk about this. Like, and I like this idea that it is, mm. is very much a human experience. So, um, yes, let's, let's kind of get back to this idea of a stage four diagnosis, right? We, we know historically in, in a conventional medicine, you know, in, in those terms, stage four typically means they expect they expect end of life will happen due to this diagnosis. They can't guarantee that it will or will not because they can't see the future. And um, but in our community, oftentimes, you know, when patients are diagnosed with their eye, that's the primary diagnosis. And then we talked about this that it it then goes to the liver or the lungs, and then you know from there can kind of go other places. And when we're given that diagnosis, most conventional or medical doctors would call that a stage four diagnosis. So. My question then is, you know, within the realm of the stage four diagnosis that happens, especially for, you know, for us, sometimes it, it happens really early when there's very little stage four disease, but it still is there and it's still very much a risk to your, to your whole body. Um, what's the best time for a patient to consider engaging with palliative care? Earlier rather than later. And so what I want to say, and so we, we're talking about stage four, and, and I love that because it's so important to support people everywhere that they are. But earlier rather than later, I will tell you this, that the earlier that you get that support with symptom management, with choices, the usually the better that whole process goes, that whole end of life goes. But I also realize this, that because there is such a sting with talking about end of life and disease processes, that when we are fearful, and of course, if somebody has an actual stage four diagnosis, it's going to you know, just be something that's so life altering and heavy, it's very hard to have uh, the understanding and the grounding to, to learn and to absorb things. So what I would share is that if possible, let's talk about this ahead of time. Let's talk about different options. But And so I really want to emphasize that. But if we are at stage four earlier rather than later, don't wait. Because when people wait, which right now we're all waiting way too long, is that I'm running in there as a hospice nurse and basically putting Band-Aids on something I see. It, it's not going as well as it could go nearly enough. So what we have is we actually have people now looking for their doula giver even ahead of time. Who's in their area? I'm not even sick. I had one woman who's 88 years old have me pay me to teach her children about end of life, she's not even ill, so that they were prepared, just like you said, Danae, you're worried about your loved ones, which most end of life people are. They want to support their loved ones. So it wasn't that, I mean, I think that's such a beautiful thing is that she had me sit with her family, teach them, let them ask questions, have the plan in place so that they feel so empowered for something that they know one day, not knowing when, will show up. So choosing ahead of time and knowing, even dipping your foot into this and just asking some questions that are on your mind, but just keep in mind that sooner rather than later, later when we're actually in it, the sooner you can do, the better that end of life will go. So can you just maybe give us a, a just a handful of examples mm -hmm. of some of the things that, that palliative care can cover? Like we talked about symptom management. So, you know, I, I think I think most of us would understand what symptom management is, but maybe give us a specific example in, in the terms of maybe someone is experiencing pain. 
Okay, so let me give you an example about pain. So when we say palliative care, I really have to do this as a disclosure, is that don't assume that because you have palliative care on the case that all your problems are solved. There's an active role in which caregivers play and patients as well in diagnosing what is the symptom, making sure you're reaching out for help, making sure you fill in the gaps of what's not available in mainstream because the medical team can only do their job when they know what's happening and when they're actually interacting with you. So let me give you an example of palliative care. I came on as a hospice nurse, but this was her pain management. This woman was so lovely. She was 80 years old. She had lung cancer, stage four lung lung cancer that she was dying from, two daughters, just beautiful. I came to her home to assess her and she said, I have so much pain in my head. It's it. And I asked her on a pain scale, zero being no pain, 10 being the most pain you could be in. Where is it? Like an eight, seven, eight, which is completely unacceptable. So pain should be at a four or below. She was on, I think it, if, if I remember correctly, I think it was 80 milligrams of morphine a day, which is a huge amount of morphine. So she was already conditioned to that. And her pain was still at a seven and eight. From my experience, that's telling me that it's not a somatic pain that a narcotic medicine would cover. So let's, what is the pain? So I need to ask her, what does it feel like? Is it a burning pain? Is it a stabbing pain? Is it intermittent? She was like, yeah, it's a nerve pain. So I went back to the doctor and I said, we have somebody, and I believe this is a nerve pain that she's had. And she needs a gabapentin or a different medication. The minute that she started that, her pain went down to a two or three. She was able to eat her tuna fish sandwiches and milk, don't judge, uh, and watch her soap operas, which is what her, what her favorite thing to do once a day was. You have high levels of pain. You can't enjoy anything. She lasted with us for weeks after that with such a high quality of life because her pain management was there. But if I, and, and look, she had been to doctor, to doctor, to doctor. If we don't dig a little bit deeper and assess and ask the right questions and teach my families to ask those questions, we can't help somebody. So it's so important, but also there's, um, and I, and I want to say this in the most loving way with not judgment, there's huge gaps in how much time a medical practitioner is with patients and families. It's up to us as family members to really say, mom, are you having pain? What does it feel like? Making sure you're contacting that medical, no, that medication, that morphine's not touching it. It must be something different. And we can teach you all that in a lot of the free resources. Yeah. So, and then you also talked about how palliative care can help with support. So what does that support sometimes look like? Like, is that, you know, like someone who helps with yeah. scheduling doctor's appointments or, you know, what does that look like? So when we talk about palliative care, let's kind of roll that back to also that non-medical doula giver mm -hmm. now, because again, unfortunately, when we're in mainstream medical, we have 20 patients. We're only there for a short amount of time. So theoretically hospice and palliative care are looking at holistically the person but unfortunately because there's a lot of gaps there there's a lot of things that are not followed through or caught so let's talk about holistic care which is so important we're holistic beings physical mental emotional and spiritual and at the end of life i will tell you this that the emotional component to who we are 
can, can produce actual physical pain. And so this is the last moment we have. So as practitioners, we want to come in and address all of those quadrants, the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And let's sit here for a minute and think if, if I got a terminal diagnosis today, you know, what would that feel like? What, what would, I would probably be thinking of what I'm going to miss out on, or, or I can't, you know, just lots of things. We want to help people show up make sure their physical symptoms are managed so that now we can sit, we can have those conversations, offer that support. And one of the things that often comes up, and I want to tell you, this is a very natural part of the human journey. One of the, one of the promises I call it is that we all have forgiveness to give others for things in our lives. And we all have forgiveness to give ourselves. And that's a huge emotional part of the end of life. And so helping with bringing in that space to have those dialogues, which again, takes building trust and having sessions and making sure symptoms are managed. What about acceptance, getting to that place where I'm okay. I'm at peace personally with that. I'm going to have my end of life. I try and put myself in those shoes many times to, to even have a glimmer of what that might feel like. But when you have somebody who is at the end of life, who's found the forgiveness, who's found the acceptance, maybe said to their loved ones, you know, thank you. And I love you. And please forgive me. And all those beautiful things that can happen their end of lives have been the most amazing that I've ever seen. So please remember holistically, we need to show up, look at those four quadrants. And I will tell you, rolling it back into our lives today is one of the greatest things we can do for care for one another. I think that's so important. Um, thank you for sharing that. So, so the, I guess what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that the, the overlaps in conventional medicine are so they're so thick that it can be kind of hard to distinguish, like for, for say your oncologist to tell you, Oh, you know, you should look at palliative and hospice hospice care. Now. Um, what I'm also hearing though, is that oftentimes they're not being encouraged to seek that care early enough. And they're being told by the time, you know, maybe they, maybe they are like in, in our case with our cancer, it's usually liver failure is the reasoning behind end of life. Um, and so they're often, you know, waiting until they're already in that experience of their liver is failing. They could have a month, but they could have, they could have days or weeks and there's no way to know. So what would be, um, some of the things that, that we could do as patients, as caregivers to help, uh, to help encourage, you know, encourage our medical teams to, to talk with us more openly about what's going on and, and when they would suggest that we start seeking the support that we really need yeah. to, like you said, to live well. I, I, Danae, I love that. So this is so important what I'm going to share with you right now. So one of the things that I have been told by patients that were on hospice is several of them had said that they actually begged their oncologist to put them on hospice and the oncologist said, no, you're not ready for it. So I want you to, with so much love, because I know that everyone is doing their best in this world. I want you to know that you have the choices and the power. So here's the thing about hospice is that you do not need your practicing doctor to give you permission 
to go on hospice if you feel that you and your loved one want to do that. If you are up against a, a place where somebody is like, we're not there yet, but you were like, no, I want to, you can actually contact that hospice. They can send out a nurse who will do an assessment. And if you are hospice appropriate, they will have their medical director admit you to hospice. So I don't want you to give away your power, so to speak, to other people. I want you to know how much power that you do have. And I would, I would do this. I would go ahead and find out who in your area, what, what hospices are recommended, look at the reviews, what are their qualifications, and get, get your information ahead of time so that you can decide what's right for you. And here's the thing, and this is so important, there are some times, and I want to share this because it's amazing, that people come on hospice services like President Carter right now, I think he's going on eight months, who actually do better and have a higher quality of life because there's just so much, again, holistic support that's being given. Um, and let's be very honest that going through surgeries and going through different things are very hard courses to endure, but you're the only one that knows what's right for you. So find out ahead of time. And I want you to understand that your practicing doctor is not the one that holds the key to hospice and getting you on it. That if they don't want to, for whatever reason, and I know that they want the best for everyone, but you have the key. And so if you really feel that this is for you and whatever your doctor might not be on board, you can contact your local hospice and you can ask for an assessment. And if you're appropriate, they will come out and they will get you on those services. Well, thank you. I think that's that's super empowering to hear. And I hope that patients and it caregivers can take that. Um, because like you said, it, yeah. you know, I think that there's this level, this stigma, and I, we've kind of alluded to this, but I don't think we've really kind of yeah. jumped it or, you know, solidly yeah. landed on this idea, but this stigma around hospice care and palliative care, really both of them that says, if I'm admitting, I need this, I'm somehow admitting defeat. I'm admitting defeat as a doctor with my patient that I can no longer help them. Yes. And I'm admitting defeat as a patient with this cancer that I will not live this. I will not live through this. Yes. And so how do you so, help address that, mm -hmm. that fear of, of admitting defeat, I guess? So let's go back to our doctors for a minute because we don't want to ever, you know, be pointing fingers and we're not at all. In fact, they're heroes, no, right? They're, with what they're, they're doing, doing and they such have such a fantastic job and, and their goal is yeah, obviously to they do a, everything they can. Of course. Of course. And and they're and they're really up against almost impossible odds. Now, we've set them up just like you just said that if they put a a person that they've been treating on hospice, they failed. We literally have that branding for them. So of course, you know, they really want to try everything and they want to keep going, but they don't want this. I failed. And you don't want to feel that you're giving up. And, and I want to say, you know, the words and the phrasing that we're using around this has to change. And that's how we're going to shift the culture because what are we giving up of? If I go on hospice, am I giving up of having a beautiful end of life be possible for me and my family? Of course not. I'm giving in, I'm giving into yeah, that. It's like so, you're letting go of a, a so different picture. You're of an illusion. Yeah. And so what we've done is we've completely in the last hundred years developed this fear of death, developed the conversation, trained our doctors. So, so all of it is a standoff. We've got to educate 
the opposite to bring back the truth of it. And that's how we can have these conversations. And I also just want to say that doctors have very little time with patients. To have an end of life conversation is not 15 minutes. It's not 10 minutes. We're not giving them the, they, they're not trained in med school with it and they're not given the time to have it. So we've got to remember how difficult it is on them. And so this needs to be changed in all fronts moving forward for all of us. Oh, such such a powerful way to put it. And I, um, I love that. And I, I just feel like it's, it's eye-opening. Like you said, it's, it's this layer of knowledge that if we have this knowledge, it, it stops being scary and it starts feeling so much more empowering. Um, and I really hope that our patients that are listening, our caregivers can take that away from this episode for sure. I hope so because, you know, I, I, obviously this is my life's purpose and this is my life's work. So, you know, I often think if the expectation is to keep somebody alive forever in this, maybe what we need to be doing is changing the expectation. And that's what we do with the education and the, and the truth about end of life. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about doula givers and about how this, um, this program that you have, you have the free course and then the doula givers. So can you just kind of give us a good summary of, of what are these, these opportunities and how can people find them? Yeah. Thank you very much for that. So again, this goes back, you know, almost two decades now where I started with that, you know, CEO in the hospice office with the full training of how to care for somebody at the end of life that you love. Three stages of end of life that I've identified, interventions to use in each stage, and then the, you know, signs that somebody's actively dying, what you can do, and then also how to set a sacred space. And this training has been online live. I do it every month and given in person and has been used all over the world. And so what I want to share with you is that it's so powerful on so many levels. And I also, what I didn't expect, so it did three set things. It teaches people how to care for their loved ones at the end of life holistically. It inspires you about life because I share bedside stories from those at the end of life, what they want you to know about the life's journey. And you'll, you'll absolutely love it. And also three, it has healed grief for people. And I didn't expect that it has healed grief from 35 years ago, 40 years ago, because it put everything into its context. And so doula givers is that is our main platform is that free education for families, the level one, that's the course you would take to care for your loved one at the end of life. But then of course, we have given a platform now of doing your advanced directives ahead of time. So free training on what are the questions that you want to think about for when that time comes for when I don't want to pursue aggressive treatment, what, how comfortable do I want to be? How do I make sure that my wishes are being honored by not just my family, but by doctors as well? So there's advanced care training. And then of course there's how to care for the caregiver. I have seen so many caregivers in that end of life space go right down with that main person. And because they're, it's being done by one person and they're not getting any respite care and it's so intense. So there's a resource center on doulagivers.com that I think that you could find just about anything that you're looking for, including grief support. Um, but I really encourage, and I want to say this from my heart, I really encourage everyone in every family to take the free family caregiver course. It'll change your life. I promise you that. Yeah. 
so powerful. And I'm Suzanne, I'm so glad that you were able to come on and that you were willing to talk to our small, tiny cancer community of just amazing people. Um, I think if you had the opportunity to come and and meet any of them in person, you would absolutely love all of, all of our, we call them our omis. Um, but we are, we are so grateful to you for taking the time. And I like, I like can feel myself getting emotional because this is just, it's such powerful stuff. (laughs) It's such powerful stuff. And, and I really think that there's so much, so much of a gift, like the gift of life. There's so much to be gained from this. Um, there is, it's, it's everything. And I, I really hope that people, caregivers, people listening, please share this, share this with someone who, you know, is experiencing, um, the stage four diagnosis, or I, you know, I would argue if, if you have a prime positive diagnosis and in your ocular melanoma journey, or if you are a higher risk patient, this is absolutely something that you should, you should consider just learning and, and learning. Like we talked about learning doesn't mean you're admitting, any level of negative, you know, defeat. It just means you're acknowledging that you're aware, you're aware that life does end and whether it happens because of this cancer or something else is irrelevant. Um, yes, this cancer adds a whole layer of uncertainty and crazy that we all get to deal with and the medical appointments and all of that is just not fun. But, but Suzanne, you did such a good job of just pulling this together. And I feel like of helping, helping, uh, frame this in a way that it is an empowering stage. And, um, and I, I just really, I truly appreciate your passion for this. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone for being here. And and I will tell you that this is how we do change the world by showing up for one another, by sharing our gifts and by really being present and seeing each other. So there's so much in this community. Danae, your group is amazing. Um, If anyone has any questions, reach out to our organization. We are here to support you. Yes, that was what I was going to say. Just due to the the timing and and the time of the day, you know, the middle of the workday for some people, I know we don't have a whole lot of questions. We've had a few people come in and just kind of share where they're at in their journey. Um, But but thank you those who listen to this uh, live broadcast and thank you those listening to the recording. And like she said, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to reach out and we will front those questions to Suzanne and her organization. You can also find them at doulagivers.com, which will be in the show notes. And, um, and I, I love this idea and I hope we can end, let's just end with this, this idea that every day can be one little lifetime. I love what you said about that. I love it too. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the, I believe podcast brought to you by castle biosciences Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.